0: Welcome to this special lecture, the Asia Research Centre. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Uh, My name is Robert Faulkner from the International Relations Department, but you wouldn't know me because I'm not an Asia expert. However, our speaker is Yves Thibergien, who I've known for many years. Uh, However, through a different connection, we have a research interest in global environmental governance, particularly genetically modified organisms. Again, don't rush out of this room. Uh, GMOs and gene GM food will not be on the agenda today. Um, Eve's work will be perhaps more familiar to you because of his wide-ranging expertise in Asian comparative and international political economy. And he has indeed the base requirements to do that kind of excellent work. He speaks several of the regional languages. And uh, he's just so come back from a whirlwind tour uh, through various Asian countries. Uh, I remember Taiwan, China, Japan, Thailand, you said? Korea. Oh, yeah. And Korea. And um, Singapore. And you're still on Taiwanese time, I think. So it's approaching 2 o'clock in the morning. So um, we thought we'll make you speak for a while to keep you awake. Uh, and I'm sure uh, the discussion after the lecture mm-hmm. will keep you awake, too. Anyway, just a brief. Uh, run through a long CV and I'll keep that very brief. You will be familiar with uh, Yves' work. He's an associate professor of political science at the University of British Columbia but has also an association with Sciences Po in Paris. Uh, In 2007 he published the widely noted book Entrepreneurial States which is on corporate governance in France Japan and Korea and he's just told me he's coming out with a new book in French on Asia and the future uh, of the world, uh, um, uh, very tasty title that we will want to see, no doubt, what you have to say on that. But the title for today's lecture is Power Shifts and Power Games in the G20, what do China and Japan want from the G20? What do we want from tonight? A stimulating talk, so Yves, uh,
1: I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us. Thank you very much, uh, Robert, for a very, very kind introduction. And uh, Now it's going to be hard to be up to that level that we sold me for um, i'll try my best so this is this is a big picture talk you know looking at uh, you know the the big geopolitical game going on today in the world and you know thinking about long term uh, issues for the world uh, i'll I'll talk of both the big pictures and then focus uh, somewhat on Japan and China uh, so I have a few cartoons to start with you will see, but before that uh, the big picture is We have found that the world sits on a lot more systemic risk than we thought would be the case, or at least uh, some people thought, Um, and we probably can say the world stands at a critical juncture. It's one of those periods, you will look back in the future, you'll look back at those years and think, wow, those years were really the critical moment where a lot of things shifted. Uh, and I'll show you some numbers, et cetera, that, that really show that the last couple years are years where you know, big, big things are happening of historical proportions. Um, global markets have outgrown the underlying institutions of governance, and in fact, Danny Roddick was here giving a talk on this very topic, uh, That was, uh, and that's a lot in his book. He has made that point very eloquently. Uh, at the more narrow level, the international monetary system uh, centered on the dollar so-called exorbitant privilege, which is the title of Barry Eichengreen's new book, uh, who is also here, I think, Barry, uh, Barry Eichengreen, um, we know has become unsustainable, has been uh, actually a factor facilitating global financial crisis. Um, we also know that there's an increasing number of global issues such as climate change, food security, we all know also now nuclear risks uh, that require more coordination, more cooperation, more governance. Uh, and finally, where all those needs are piling up, where we really have a lot of functional needs to get the system uh, to work or to, or to not collapse, uh, we are in the midst of a great rebalancing of power where an unprecedented amount of Relative power has shifted from the established OECD countries, US, Europe, uh, Japan, to the rising emerging powers, and primarily China. Uh, And so that change, change in the balance of power makes it also more urgent and more difficult to change our whole global governance system. So that's the background for the G20 today. So a few uh, pictures, this is the effort of the G20 to, uh, to rebalance the monetary system uh, and they're finding that this is a difficult thing to do. Um, this is the currency war and the G20. You've seen those cartoons probably last year, lots of it during uh, G20 in Seoul. Um, and right now we're in the midst of that big debate, unprecedented debate actually about the future leader of the IMF. Uh, well, it's likely to now to, that we know it was going to be Christine Lagarde, but the fact that there has been such an open campaign and candidates flying around many countries making pictures, etc., uh, and to have lots of countries contesting the, the past uh, ways in which the, those leaders were chosen uh, is a, a very different moment. We have never seen this, in fact, uh, such a contested debate about the future of the IMF. Um, so, in the midst of this big debate, the G20 has emerged as the central game uh, for the future of global governance uh, and it, we're talking particularly of the G20 Leaders Summit, now meeting once a year, the next one will be in France, in Cannes, in November, um, we know that uh, the so-called you know, the G7, G8 is now unable to solve global governance questions because it No, the other powers cannot be excluded anymore, like China, India, Brazil. Uh, We know that one alternative that the Americans have uh, sought, the G2, uh, a game between US and China, to sort of have a condominium to agree (laughs) on the future of the world, doesn't work because China refuses it. many uh, people are talking of a de facto G0 now where there is lack of cooperation where every country uh, fights for their own Uh, we know that this is hopeless it's not going to help solve some of the urgent problems we have so in that sense the G20 is the only big game in town that has the potential at least uh, uh, the ability potentially to uh, to solve some of the big big issues Um, but the task is very high The G20 basically has to renegotiate the post-war liberal order uh, that has essentially been our order since uh, 1945 uh, and to build a post-hegemonic order, uh, a very tall order, and of course the outcome is very uncertain at this point. Um, So then there's the side question about China and Japan, uh, which is a a subpart of my talk here. Um, China is emerging, and I'll show you why, as the actual pivotal player in the G20. Uh, is the player that has to be involved in any decisions. Um, and this is, of course, China is part of a triad of super players, uh, US, Europe, and China. Uh, but it's the sort of central player that is required for any coalition to work. So the question is, well, what is China thinking about the G20 and global governance? What are China's preferences? How are those preferences being formed? Uh, what can we say about the, the future moves that China may take about the G20? Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll cover some of the positions I just came back from a, a long period of interviews in China actually on anything from Tobin tax to, uh, you know, to um, the dollar system to, uh, current, to uh, commodity prices um, Japan is also a global player in fact it's often forgotten because now we think only of China but Japan today has an, has an economy of equal size to China So yes, China just passed Japan, but that means they're still roughly equal, both of them at 9% of the world economy. Um, And Japan owns about 20% of the foreign debt of the US, a little less than China now, but very close, actually, to China's. Um, Japan just played a key role in the Nagoya Biodiversity Treaty that was signed last October, and actually as the host, Japan was the host and played a key role. Uh, So Japan could be an important player. So here again, I'm asking why the Japan's preferences? Uh, in the G20 game and what is Japan doing. Um, Now in terms of summary of my points in this talk I'm going to say a few things on China, a few things on Japan. Uh, First on China, uh, there is over the past year and it's really striking an explosion of interest within China uh, around the theme of global governance and I'm, I'm struck by the contrast with even 2009 when I did another batch of research uh, there's an explosion now of seminars, of think tank meetings, uh, of uh, even training sessions to the top leaders uh, by scholars. More and more scholars picking up G20 global governance. And that's very, very new for China. Uh, because it's a brand new topic for China. For the last 30 years during the reforms, China was mostly striving to adjust itself to an existing order. Uh, so it was never in the business of planning the next order or reshaping it was you know here is a a dominant order we have to sort of fit into it and be a successful player very much like the East Asian economies did before China Um, so it's a novel issue but there's an explosion of interest Uh, from a big international relations perspective uh, China's first interest is in reducing its own vulnerabilities China still feels very vulnerable to the US and to an order that it doesn't fully understand uh, and China um, is still dependent through all kinds of you know, arenas. Uh, so there is, that's the first topic. Uh, the second, in terms of domestic process, what we find is that there is still division among ministries. So it's a fragmented governance process. Uh, and actually I'll say a similar story to Japan. Um, and we are in a period now of weak central leadership because we are in a transition moment. Uh, next year there will be a new leadership, so we are at moment actually in history for the first time uh, maybe in 2000 years of Chinese history when there is a limped-up government. So you have a fragmented uh, set of ministries you know, competing for their own interest, uh, and yet you have a central leadership, the Politburo Standing Committee, at the moment that's uh, unable to take uh, you know, entrepreneurial direction, so to take new steps. Um, so that's the rough picture on China today, but. I'll also present some wider interest to what, what the Chinese thinking about G20. Uh, for Japan, there's really a contrast between what the public or what the uh, elite thinkers, you know, the academics, etc., are thinking. Uh, and in fact, the public or a lot of the thinkers uh, are thinking things that are quite similar to what Europeans are saying, uh, what even Gordon Brown used to say, you know, when he was here about the new Brettonwood, the need of, uh, to solve financial systemic risk. Uh, so I hear a lot of that. Uh, in general elites in favor of more regulation to match markets Uh, but in practice today the voice of Japan at the G20 is almost zero, very very small and that's due to uh, political paralysis. There's like China a fragmentation among six ministries and there is a lack of coordination by the Prime Minister. So at this moment China has basically, uh, Japan has played under its weight, has punched below its weight Uh, And in fact, I would argue even below Korea, and I'll say a few words about Korea. Um, So the only way, I mean the next step, of course, that's the current moment. Uh, In a year or two, we may find a very different voice for Japan in the G20, but that's when you have a new prime minister that's uh, more actively involved in coordinating among the ministries and shaping a new direction. so now a, a few uh, you know, background cartoons, I have six or seven. That's uh, an American cartoon in the Wall Street Journal, which represents the American nightmare about the future of the world and future global governance. Uh, that was together with an article uh, written by Niall Ferguson. Uh, so you notice China here, the US here, Europe here, um, so, you know, you, you could also maybe uh, think of Martin Jack's book, When, Mar- when China Rules the World, so that, that's this, this approach here. Um, then you have the Chinese response to this, and that's a question in a Chinese newspaper, uh, where the Chinese actually are very uh, concerned about their future role, and they don't believe they are a great power. They, uh, the Chinese think primarily of their own vulnerabilities at this point, and they know how many obstacles they have to go through to keep rising the way they do. So they're not sure if the dragon will be a a real dragon, or a real leader, or will sort of pop Opinion polls, and that's from the China Daily, show that when asked if uh, they think that China has become a superpower Only 12% say yes 12% of Chinese only think they are a superpower If you ask the same question in the US, you would have at least 50% (coughs) saying yes So there is a huge uh, difference here between how foreigners think about China's power today and how Chinese inside think about their own power. Uh, And that's sort of unprecedented. The clue is pretty simple. It's because the GDP per head is still only $4,000. So if you look at it from inside, uh, you're still a developing country with a long way to go. If you look at it from outside, you find a total GDP that's now equal to Japan's number two in the world that will eventually surpass the US. And so everyone says, well, you have accumulated global power but from an inside perspective, you don't see it yet. Um, G20, three views on a G20 before I get to more analysis. Uh, this is the official picture, the good looking picture. Uh, still kind of amazing, that many leaders coming together uh, and actually making some agreements and institutional innovation. Uh, we haven't seen this often in history. We haven't seen this in the thirties, for example, they were unable to do this. Uh, and you see they look all well, friendly etc. Uh, you might ask why you have more than 20 heads. Uh, some of you may have counted already. There's at least 30 here on this picture. Uh, and that's, uh, There are two, two answers to this. The G20, they have 20 heads plus five guests. And there's one guest that manages to be always here. So it's the basically the de facto 21st member. Any clue who that is? There is a de facto 21st member in the G20. Spain. <laughs> Spain Spain is very frustrated not to be in a G20 because it has the 12th largest economy uh, and yet it's not formally in but they managed to be in every G20 so far uh, you have four other guests always and that's the, the host country that invites four other countries and then you have the heads of international organizations so in fact in this picture uh, that's the other quiz one nationality is overrepresented relative to others has three members of that nationality who can it be? And that basically is the country that dominates global governance today.
2: Russia?
1: It's France. <laughs> Believe it or not. You got uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn out here, Pascal Lamy, head of WTO, Strauss-Kahn head of IMF, well, uh, and Sarkozy. So that's three. You got only two Americans. You have uh, Bob Zillick here as the head of the World Bank. Uh, with, we have two. With s- the UN. Ban uh, and Bankimon, uh, here. Uh, so you have two Koreans indeed uh, and then you have Zapatero of Spain here who shouldn't be here but he's always here <laughs> he found his way so you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to see those lots of little picture analysis that's now a second view that was during the fall uh, during the Seoul G20 summit a Chinese newspaper cartoon find it very very to the point and they see the G20 as a big battle between US and China uh, so that G2 within G20 argument uh, and before the G20 last fall you had the US president going to Indonesia, India, Korea, Japan and trying to build a big uh, you know, Asian axis against China to pressure China on the rim and other things. And the uh, response by China was to open an axis in Europe. So there were several uh, high-level trips to Europe and many European countries covered by the Chinese leadership uh, to have a wedge between US and Europe. Uh, so there is a lot of that, that's the second view on the G20, that great confrontation between the current hegemon and the future dominant power, uh, and no one can ignore that game. Um, and the third view, that's the Financial Times, fragmented game, diverging interest, not much happening, big issues not solved, and et etc. you probably heard that view. So very, very different views on the G20. Um, now that turns me to uh, the, of the talk. rest of the talk, I want to first lay out why global governance and G20 are really important dilemmas today, why they matter so much. Then I'll turn to the changing balance of power and why we are at a critical juncture. Um, From there I can then say a few words on the G20 and I'll I'll present uh, an argument that the G20 is really about three concentric circles, three games being played at the same time, which makes it more complicated, uh, and emerging patterns and the the game between the triad. Uh, Then I'll turn to China and Japan, Uh, And I'll add uh, a few words, very short, on a side puzzle, the weak East Asian regionalism. So while the Europeans are somehow doing a relatively OK job on coordinating their preferences, the East Asian uh, countries, particularly the three North East Asian countries that have very similar interest on global finance, have so far not at all coordinated and that's uh, that's worth checking checking out. so I have some acknowledgments, I have a grant from Social Science Humanities Research Council from, China, from uh, Canada, So a multi-year uh, project on ch- actually China's role in global governance, so it's a side book that I'm doing. I was this year also East Asian Institute Fellow, which uh, means I was sent to five universities in Asia uh, as visiting scholar, Peking University being the longest almost a month, but Fudan in China. Then uh, separately I was in Tokyo for January. KO I will be soon, uh, EAI in Seoul, uh, Asia Center in Paris, and Sciences Po, that's February. Uh, so, a lot of hosting institutions that have made uh, my, my life much easier. <laughs> um, global Governance Dilemma, so this is, you know, sort of a good summary. For those of you who can't read, you see the leaders here on top, the Global Economic Summit, the G20, saying, I think we've demonstrated we're on top of the situation. Um, the world is not sure, however. So, um, that's a simple theoretical framework, that's all the theories I will give you today, (laughs) not too much at night. Uh, You know, it's simple, it's sort of an institutionalist framework. Um. And this is uh, straight out of Norse and Roderick and others. Um, What we learn from institutional economics is that there has to be a sort of match between markets and institutions. Markets cannot function without rules of the games. Uh, there has to, you know, there, there has to be monitoring for well-functioning markets, um, and markets require, you know, those functions to be solved, particularly solving collective action dilemmas, reducing transaction costs. So there's a long literature about this. Uh, at the global level, we know that markets have globalized, have actually intensified, have become more and more complex, advanced, etc. Uh, but rulemaking remains fragmented because rulemaking is still rooted in national rulemaking. So we have, from a very simple, this is a very simple picture, but while the markets really get more and more, Complex and globalized, etc. Uh, it's very hard to keep that balance uh, between those global markets and the rules that are necessary, the rules of the game that are necessary for markets to function. And if we go too far out of sync, then you have systemic crisis, or you have things like 2008. Um, so that leads to the next question: What is global governance? Uh, and I take this very, very broad definition of global governance. I see it as a collection of international rules treaties, institutions that help states coordinate actions at a global level in the context of fragmented sovereignty and the lack of a world government. But the immediate observation that we can have is that this is a very haphazard collection of very distinct pieces that don't jig well with each other, that have a distinct history, a distinct level of depth, a distinct uh, level of advancement, they include national rules, bilateral treaties, international treaties, uh, international organizations. It's, a, it's sort of bric-a-brac, you know, really that's where the French word is very useful. Um, and I'll show you a graph afterwards, but that leads me to this paradox today. We're at a time when we need more global governance. There is a functional need for it. Uh, we have accelerating and more and more complex global markets, uh, particularly in finance. Finance is the crux of it, but even in trade. Uh, and so we need monitoring rules uh, to, to keep in, in touch with it, to, no, to keep in sync and to have that equilibrium uh, always present. Uh, in addition, to we are at a time where we have uh, an increase, uh, an acceleration in the unevenness of the distribution of gains from globalization. There has been a lot of transfer of relative power from OECD countries to the emerging countries. Uh, and then finally we have many new complex issues that we can qualify as market failures. The market cannot solve climate change, uh, for example. Uh, so that also is a case of need for global governance. Um, and so while the need is much higher, uh, the ability to, to create those institutions and governance rules that we need uh, is, is, is difficult, is um, more constrained today because we're in a context of multipolarization and the old model that we had uh, to create global governance, which was a hegemonic model where the US hegemon could sort of convince, coerce, or uh, coax other countries to fall in place and produce rules for the public good, uh, as well as the private good of the hegemon, uh, it's harder today in a multipolar context. Uh, and it's even harder when you have underlying the multipolarization, a second trend of hegemonic transition where we're going to have a passage from a current dominant power to a future dominant power, uh, China, even though there would be other powers as well. But when you have those two things happening, you have more uncertainty, and you have more concerns for the national interests. Uh, And it happens just when we actually need countries to get together uh, and to solve uh, those those global problems. Um, And that's why we have such tools of global governance, quite limited uh, and not very sturdy. Um, that's a you know, very simple effort to look at the type of global governance we have today in different uh, areas. Um, and the point that I want to make out of this table is that first, in each different issue area, we have different arrangements, and they're not always coherent with each other. Uh, second, Uh, in each case uh, there is a period uh, where the locus of power is expanding China is becoming a powerful actor in everyone even though the institutions that exist were not designed uh, with China in the first place Um, and so all of them are actually in flux, in transition they have tensions, they're unstable or they're fragmented so that's the big picture Uh, I could take an example in trade it's well known that we have the WTO we used to have the GATT then gone into WTO, uh, but the WTO, like everything, when you talk global institutions, there's two parts. There's an organization or a you know, set of agreements that function today, uh, so you, that's why in Geneva you have a big organization with lots of staff, and they have a, a, an arbitration court, basically. That is functioning, that's a structure that's in place. Um, but then the second part is you have, you know, every 10 years, you have an effort to expand, you know, to move to the next round. Uh, and to uh, expand the, rule m- the amount of rules that the, the world will have uh, and for that second part we used to have a quad uh, deciding essentially the quad was the US, Canada, EU and Japan getting together in a small room, uh, making a deal and then somehow the deal was expanded uh, and um, you know, and every other country would sign up to it uh, the last time this worked that was the Uruguay round in 1994 and that's how they created the WTO Today, the Quad is facing a group of emerging powers around the G22 and many other groups, actually, uh, that is not accepting this Quad, right? This is not representative, it's not fair, and that explains why we have today uh, a paralysis in Doha around. We don't have this, you know, the, the condominium that, that worked to generate that governance, which was not necessarily fair and uh, balanced, uh, you know, it's not functioning anymore. Um, in a currency, we have a global system rooted in U.S. hegemony, uh, with the locus of power you know, US and now uh, Japan, China, uh, UK and EU were important, now it's in fluxes and transitions. So every aspect of it, in FDI by the way notes, and we have the expert here with Mark Menger, uh, we had no global institution, no global agreements, so we're mostly relying on bilateral FD, FTAs. Uh, and so we have diffused power and fragmented governance. Uh, in a competitive way. GMO, so there still be a word about GMO here since <laughs> they have a key expert uh, especially on the, pro- the biosafety you know, bio protocol uh, uh, what we see is essentially two clusters. So We have a WTO cluster of governance and a, and a UN, uh clusters and they are not fully compatible so there is a bipolar global governance. So the sum of it is it's kind of messy and it's all in transition um, And that leads me to my view of the future. We are today at a level where we have expanding markets, expanding interdependence, but low institutionalization. Uh, That means we have growth with uncertainty and systemic risk piling up. Uh, And we can only go so far. At some point, systemic risk blows up, right? Like in 2008. Um, uh, If we don't uh, watch carefully, we go into essentially the interdependence of the global markets will hit either backlash from society or their own limits because the rulemaking would be too weak at which point we'll have tension and crisis. Uh, The ideal outcome is one where you have both interdependence and high institutionalization which then leads to sustainable growth uh, and stability. Uh, This box is theoretical, that is if you have more rules than interdependence, Uh, that's not the case now and it's very unlikely to ever happen. Uh, Today we are here and so we either will move here or here or stay here but this is not a very stable uh, box. That's my big picture view Um, now I'm turning to the power story Uh, this is the most important chart ever published in a recent political economy so really worth looking at uh, carefully Um, it's not that visible, it comes from the OECD report from June 2010 called Shifting Wealth Uh, this is uh, the pie of the world economy divided between two groups the OECD countries you know, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and US and Canada, uh, and the non-OECD countries. Um, this division actually has been stable, remarkably stable, mm-hmm. badly so in some ways, but uh, you know, for the last 40 years, except the last 10 years, but say from 1960 to, 90, to 2000, uh, the OECD was always around 65%, between 60 and 65%. Uh, in, 90, in 1990, it was still 62%, Uh, and in 2000 it was 60% so still relatively stable Uh, and that's on that basis that the OECD countries dominated all global institutions including the IMF for example uh, because that represented the the, the share of the world economy well um, over the last 10 years between 2000 and 2010 we have gone from a 60-40 division to a 50-50 division uh, 51-49 But 2011 is the year when uh, there is equal weight between OECD countries and non-OECD countries. Uh, This is a PPP level uh, on the exchange rate but actually it doesn't change that much uh, even in nominal exchange rate and I'll show you some numbers there. Uh, The OECD predicts and that's a pretty conservative scenario that the trend will continue but more mildly Uh, and so by 2030 uh, the non-OECD will be almost 60%, they say 57 and the OECD 43%. Uh, today, 2011, that moment of equality, um, in a way, explains why the next leadership of the IMF is so disputed. The BRICS countries have seen this and they say, hold on, you don't have the right anymore, you know, G7, essentially, to decide everything on your own. Uh, you are now about to be minority in the global economy. Uh, so that's, that's a big big trend, that's a very big story. Um, just looking at Japan and China, this is not so clear but this is the narrow version of it uh, but it's absolutely dramatic. You got China here and Japan up here. Uh, in, 19, in 2000, ten years ago when I was teaching about the East Asian economy, Japan was equal four times China. So we would say you know, yes China is rising but don't forget Japan's size is four times bigger than China's So it's still a dominant player in Asia um, In 2010 that's over, China equals Trump, Japan And they are of course crossing, in 2011 China is 10% bigger than Japan
3: What's on the vertical scale?
1: Uh, that's uh, total GDP, in nominal, t- nominal term in dollars uh, so essentially uh, $4 trillion, right? In, in 2000, uh, China is $1 trillion, Japan $4 trillion. In 2010, Japan is still $4 trillion roughly. In part, it's a bit, of a, a bit of exchange rate effect negative for Japan, but uh, mostly it's been flat. The growth has been flat, whereas China's, you know, when you grow 10% a year, it, in, you know, it multiplies quickly. Um, and so that's a really sort of, you know, that's where economics turn into power. Uh, when you have that much change, you know it changes the balance of power. Everybody knows that, and this, and this is a story of the last decade, 2000 to 2010. Uh, it's a narrow story of the narrow version of what I just said uh, with the bigger story. Now this is a uh, you know, local bank here, in, you know, right next door in the city. Uh, they have an even more dramatic prediction. They, are of course, the pink, you know, the pink model guys. This is a, a sort of very non-conservative model, but. It was very uh, loudly presented at Davos this year and was talked about by everybody. So Standard Chartered Bank, did now its nominal dollar, uh, they say today, uh, if we look at the world economy, the US is 24% of the global economy, EU 27 is 27%, easy to remember. Japan is still 9%, China is equal, 9%, they have rich equality. And India is only 2%. And by the way, that's why India today is not yet as dominant in G20 and global governance as China. India is still a long way behind. Um, In 2030, and that's still nominal dollar, they predict that global uh, GDP will go from 62 trillion to 300, so still multiply widely. But China will then be 24%, while the US would be 12% of the world economy. So double. Uh, India will reach almost the US at 10%. Japan will shrink massively to just 3%. So from 9 today to 3, Japan will become very, very small. Uh, and the EU is still uh, bigger than the US. Uh, that's the sort of the wildest scenario. The OECD one I showed you was more conservative, did not predict as much shift. But this is the sort of models people are operating under now. And when you hear in a, sort of a more assertive voice from China, they, they are looking at those models. <laughs> And, and, and time is moving fast, right? So you get this kind of picture. Uh, I'm sure Robert away would uh, enjoy that. That's 2000, that's 2010. Uh, so that's uh, IMF World Bank telling the, emerging, the developing countries, you must reform. And think of the Asian crisis 1997, right? The amount of uh, change imposed by IMF on, on the Asian countries. Uh, in uh, 2010, you got India, China, Brazil standing up having that BRICS statement uh, and now telling IMF World bank, you need to reform. So this is a historic shift you know, in the balance of power. Uh, things are not the same and this is really the story of the last 10 years. Um, now I'm getting to the G20 uh, itself and the big picture so quick context uh, you know, GX uh, new, uh, new creation they're not really formal institutions no? they're those informal clubs where leaders get together and sort of chat sometimes nothing comes out, they just chat other times they sort of make an agreement and that agreement is not a formal treaty or anything, it's sort of a joint, uh, a joint decision to ask others uh, bureaucracies or whatnot to do something um, so initially not too much happened uh, it moved from G6, G7 uh, etc, G8 to 97 uh, the G20 itself as an idea was created in 1999 uh, but not as a summit leader, only as a summit uh, for finance ministers and central bankers and it came really out of the Asian crisis because people said well, uh, you know, obviously the IMF failed, uh, and Robert Witt wrote a lot about this, failed in, uh, <laughs> you know, in in preventing or even monitoring beforehand the, the risks that were developing uh, and also was sort of very abusive in the way it dealt, it dealt with the crisis uh, in 97. Uh, so there is a need to do something else uh, between a larger group of countries that include the big emerging powers. Uh, also they felt you know, it's easier with uh, central bankers and finance ministers to speak the same language They sort of an epistemic community, it's easier than bringing the top leaders. Uh, I don't know if you know how we got to 20 and who picked the 20, uh, but essentially it's a story of two leaders in one room for one hour, and those two were Paul Martin of Canada, finance minister, and Larry Summers of the US. And in that room, they decided to keep it simple with 20, and then they sort of uh, decided who would be the 20. Uh, And so the idea was, well, you roughly take the top 20 countries by order of GDP, but then you adjust, there are too many Europeans, they thought, no European in that room so no more Spain, get out of Spain, we don't want more European beyond the G8 Uh, so there's a clear decision, Netherlands was 16th GDP and was kicked out Spain was 11th or 12th and was kicked out Uh, so that and of course Switzerland was not included Uh, but it was just above 20th Uh, then they they said we roughly need representation, so we need one from Africa one from Latin America, they eventually brought Argentina as well uh, under push pressure by the US apparently Uh, for Asia they hesitated and the Malaysia was, by, you know, was pretty close to the cutoff but uh, the US was really strong that they didn't want Malaysia on board because there was strong hatred with Mahathir at the time so they, and Nigeria nearly got in but Nigeria at the time was in an election crisis so they thought well we'll decide later when, ele- when Nigeria has stable leadership but the time passed and then 20 were decided so Nigeria did not get in uh, but you know, it's, a rough, it's, you know, it's a rough story um, and then this, uh, in 2008, was expanded to uh, a, a leader's summit, um, and there's a, there a side story to that. Um, well, I wanted to show this picture. I mean, Again, it's a G8, but there is nine heads, so something doesn't match here. Do you know why there's nine heads in a G8 summit? Still today, right? There's a Deauville G8 that just took place. There was nine heads there. And he thought, that's a good way to quiz your friends at dinner tables. <laughs> yeah, this guy. <laughs> a good friend of the UK. Not. The head of the EC Commission or EU Commission, uh, Barroso. is uh, the ninth member, but even though it's not called G9. Uh, it's been added for 20 years. Ago. Um, so why in 2008 did they decide to expand and how did they decide to do this? Um, well, the idea came from uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. Uh, actually, it came while he was in Quebec discussing with Hopper, Stephen Hopper, but he flew from Quebec to, uh, to uh, the U.S. to Camp David and had discussion with They said, well, they, the, 2000, the financial crisis is dramatic, we need urgent coordination, we don't have the right tools, we have a gap in global governance. So the French wanted a G12 or 13. Uh, G8 plus BRICS essentially. Uh, maybe Mexico as well, or Saudi Arabia, there was that talk. But uh, it was very difficult to do a G12-13 because it was hard to justify why you pick some countries not others, Uh, and also nothing like this existed, whereas the G20 as a number existed already. So in the end it it shows that sometimes it's easier at the time of crisis or when you need something to pick up something that's on the shelf that's already there uh, than to create something totally new. so why well it was the global financial crisis the failure of the IMF, the rise of China and Brazil, the, the one I showed you, the, the 10 years, critical 10 years, so they recognize you need to create something new um, and like in any process you know, the EU functions in a relatively similar way, in the European Union you have a whole set of institutions and rules etc but whenever something new has to be built, innovation or they have to expand, they have to solve more problems it can only happen at the leader's summit where you have to have an influx of sovereignty, of pool sovereignty. So the G20 is the same idea, where you're going to put the more powerful countries to sort of coordinate, put a bit of sovereignty, and show leadership to then create something institutionalized. Um, so that's the thought. We know there have been five, uh, five summits so far, the sixth one will be in Cannes, uh, so, you know, U.S. and U.K. the the U.K. one is actually the high point of the G20. This is the climax. This is when it really made a difference. Uh, they uh, essentially made this very important decision not to get into uh, trade wars. And even though there are some exceptions, it mostly helped. Uh, they doubled the resources of the IMF, uh, which is enormous, right? And when China contributed money, that was new. Uh, they created the FSB. They coordinated fiscal stimulus. They did some promises on financial regulations, not all f- uh, follow-through. Uh, they promised to work on the environment, that didn't get followed through. But the uh, amount of things they did in sort of IMF trade, uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, was actually pretty historic, uh, and they did, in a way, prevent the world from falling into a great depression, like 1930s, by coordinating instead of fighting. Um, but that was short-term stuff, right? They didn't yet finish at that point a long-term, preventive, institutional build-up. Um, in uh, Pittsburgh, that's when they decided that the G20 would be called the premier global forum. So more important than G8 and, G- uh, and others. Uh, Toronto didn't do very much. <laughs> uh, Seoul was interesting in terms of that's where they decided the new voting powers in the IMF. And that was significant. They significantly increased China, for example. Uh, and it was a difficult battle. I can say more in Q&A, but it ended up being very dramatic. Uh, in the end, you had strauss and the Korean president. Uh, locking the door and promising they would actually prevent all transport in Korea unless the leaders agreed Uh, because there was really a difficult political uh, you know nut to crack Uh, and so that threat in the end worked Um, they also agreed the Basel banking reforms uh, the financial safety nets some new development norms so something significant Uh, so there is a track record uh, even though it hasn't solved everything uh, the key is now. Will it uh, with, you know, fizzle if we are out of the global crisis, or will it continue and be able to generate some uh, coordination and global governance? Um, so, what about the G20? Um, so, I see the G20 as having three games at the same time, three concentric circles. Um, the game one is the one you probably heard most about in the press. It's technical coordination to ride out of the global crisis. It was urgent, it was very visible, uh, and yet it was a more short-term game, so not uh, as important in a long-term sense. It was how to save the system. You have to remember in 2008, in September 2008, when Lehman went bankrupt, we were on the brink of an entire meltdown of the global financial system and the entire global economy. In particular, the next day, September 17, had they let AIG go bankrupt, and maybe Merrill Lynch, who was all on the brink, uh, like Lehman, probably we had no more global economy after that. So we were really on the brink, right? We nearly had collective suicide of the global economy. Uh, so we have to remember, you know, saving the system was actually not obvious, they had to do stuff. Uh, and so they did those things, fiscal policy, you know, uh, stabilizing debt financing flows, dealing with consequences for less developing countries. Protecting the training system and then plugging regulatory holes. This is what the Americans needed, right? This is why you had American purchase into the G20 ideas. Um, but there's a second game, and that's the game where the Europeans have been very loud. And actually, all three leaders you know, from the big countries, including Golden Brown, right? But Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy and Golden Brown were very, very vocal on this. They made big speeches, so they said, We need a new Bretton Woods, we have a total imbalance between regulation and markets. Uh, we need to redress it, we need uh, in particular we need uh, robust banking regulations, capital flow regulations hedge funds, derivatives regulation rating agencies, stuff like Tobin tax came back, that's amazing When, you, for me an amazing moment was to have Gordon Brown, the leader of the UK which has been a country opposed to Tobin tax forever because the city would be opposed to it in principle uh, suddenly advocating it right? in, in a sense that was astonishing um, you know, bank taxes and then also needs to do other things, climate change, raw material prices, energy, food. So a lot of work uh, you know, to stabilize the global economy uh, and, and go beyond actually just economy, also environment. Um, but there's a third game, and the third game makes things more complicated. The first two games were public good stories, where everybody in a way is in it together, right? even though there are some private interests versus others. Five minutes. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so that one is where, where some are winning more than others in globalization and so the global institutions have to adjust to new power relationships but they also have impact, the way you t- reform them will have impact on, on the power uh, of different countries um, I argue also that the G20 is primarily not just 20 countries being equal around a circle it's about a triad and it's US, Europe, China a core group if they agree anything the other countries were mostly bandwagon then there's a second circle of important medium-sized countries and that includes Japan, India, Russia uh, also Korea and Canada that often are balances middle players that are good at helping uh, crafting coalitions and then other countries are less important uh, initially the G20 was a debate between EU and US over regulations and over global governance uh, Eventually, gradually China got more involved in a, in a larger discussion but initially China was mostly silent uh, and Japan has been punching under its weight and That's sort of a rough political story um, EU has two problems, the EU in this G20 game has two issues One is that it's a less organized actor relative to the others right? There are moments, like in London, where the big countries and even the EU uh, presidency are able to speak together and then they have more impact. There are other moments, like in 2010, maybe even today, where the three key countries, the US, uh, UK, France and Germany, are are divided. Um, And at this point, the EU sort of drops in importance. So the EU can only play a role in that global governance debate if the three big countries are united and if they can also get the EU on board, if possible. Uh, So that's the first constraint, Uh, the second constraint is that uh, the EU essentially represents one end of the spectrum, the more regulatory, more governance-oriented end of the spectrum, Uh, and the US is the other side of the spectrum, uh, sort of reluctant to move too far in global governance. And That puts a country like China right in the middle, uh, as well as others like India, maybe Japan, Uh, and so they become the balancers, and the future of the direction of G20 will essentially depend on where those balances go. Uh, if we talk of Tobin tax, you talk of banking tax, if China sort of puts its weight behind it, suddenly, uh, with Europe, there will be a lot of you know, movement toward it. And that's not impossible. Actually, informally, all the main leaders in China are very in favor of a Tobin tax. Uh, formally, they don't yet take that position because of issue with the US. Um, that's just one example. So that's the proof that China is in the middle, in the G20, that's the hard proof. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll skip that but I've been working in sort of quantifying positions of countries on, on different core issues uh, I just want to point out that on many issues that are raised in the G20, uh, the US is not interested, A zero means no interest one means uh, high interest, whereas Europe has high interest on many dimensions, uh, that are more regulatory, more governance oriented uh, so the the buying of the U.S. in the G20 is always a question uh, a question mark and in fact I argue that the only way you keep the U.S. actively involved in it is by having China actively involved Uh, because the only core interest now for the U.S. in the G20 is to have a way to have a dialogue and put pressure on China and the best way to do it is in the G20 Uh, so China is the reason for U.S. involvement Um, right so we can on position of different countries, we can leave it to um, to the q and um, I'll go straight to uh, this punchline on China. Um, one punchline is that China has an open and fragmented decision making. Now I sometimes get in trouble with this because people tell me, how do you ignore the totalitarian side and all the uh, uh, the. Um, the the side we hear a lot about Chinese governance, but when it gets to political economy, it's actually a pretty diverse model with a lot of actors and a lot of coalitions sort of fighting with each other. So China is actually a much more pluralistic model in political economy than is assumed. And so it's a story where there's competing interests, competing ministries, it's very fragmented, um, and it's how those coalitions are formed and then how the coordination or how the tipping of balance is happening at the State Council and then at the Politburo level. Uh, That's what we need to study in order to understand what what China says in the G20. Initially, uh, the, the top level, so the political principle, is the Standing Committee of the Politburo, the nine top leaders. Were not heavily involved in something that was seen as very technical, but gradually this year they get m- more involved. It has become more politicized, and so that makes the game less predictable uh, in terms of final decisions. Um, it's uh, you know the initial default position by China is the Deng Xiaoping line, which is to lie low because China feels vulnerable to the US. And there's this very good book by H. Steinfeld just uh, came out uh, where in the title is Playing Our Game. He argues that actually China is mostly playing a globalization game that it didn't create and that's playing to the advantage of the US in the end. So a lot of Chinese leaders that I interview think like that. They feel a very dependent, very vulnerable in, in the globalization game. And so they're very unwilling to rock the boat with the US, they feel that the US could could squash the economy at any point, uh, because there are many choke points and if you buy very vulnerable. Uh, so their preference is the stability of the system. Uh, it's also a belief in regulatory need. Um, then there's bureaucratic difference between the different interests. Uh, but when it comes to you know, questions of all the global governance questions, the default position is actually uh, very similar to Europeans, particularly France, German, uh, in the belief that you have to have a re- regulatory balance to the market. Uh, so that's uh, an underlying preference, even though at the strategic level of the G20 is not always expressed. Um, so the outcome so far is a reactive uh, country, pro-status quo, with little entrepreneurial capacity, but some original ideas that, that could in the end, you know, in a few years, lead to some interesting <laughs> coalition building. Um, they care primarily about the global trading system, that stable energy security, a stable monetary system, um, yet a gradually opening international monetary system, uh, not just the dollar, and more voice in international institutions. Um, for Japan, um, we also have a story of fragmented bureaucratic position. Uh, But what's critical so far is that we have had lack of interest by the prime ministers, the last two prime ministers, uh, the current and the previous. So essentially the fragmented interests are not reconciled, and what you have is two consequences, one is you don't have an entrepreneurial position, with Japan playing coalition games with other players, and that's very frustrating. I'm actually asked to help the French government now steer the G20, uh, and I'm writing reports uh, on how they can engage more with Japan, Korea and China. And they're very frustrated with the Japanese right now. Because it's like, well, we've got all these ideas of common interest, but there's no reaction coming from Japan. Um, so, because there's lack of centralization. The system in Japan works only with coordination at the prime minister level. Or maybe similar to the UK. Uh, so that's the, the current situation. Um, in terms of weak regionalism, uh, the key thing I wanted to show you is this. Uh, It's well-known that China and Japan and Korea are different in terms of size, development, and currency regime, right? China has a controlled currency regime. But it's also fascinating to see all of them are trading nations with high current account surplus, high foreign exchange reserves, mostly in dollar, dependent on the dollar, uh, in a similar percentage to their GDP. They're all concerned about capital flows, or they do actually de facto control in the case of China. Uh, they all suffered from financial crisis and financial volatility Not yet China, but they're terrified about having a Japan story or Korea story happening to them uh, You hear that all the time They're not financial centers, they're dependent on raw material and oil dependence uh, on oil. Um, And they, they support the trading system, but in a way they support the Bretton Woods version of globalization That's their preference, fundamentally So it's very, very similar um, And the fact is they don't coordinate right now even when they met like three weeks ago in Japan and Fukushima there's absolutely no work together on the G20 in the G20 they end up taking different positions Uh, for example the monetary system Japan systematically backs up the dollar and puts pressure on the RMB Um, and they they clash over raw materials and they don't express their common interests that has systemic impact by the way I'm saying this primarily because it means that the voice for more governance to reduce systemic volatility of finance or reduce the, you know, the volatility of commodity prices uh, is not being expressed uh, right now because uh, the divisions between them uh, prevent them from you know, in a way joining in the larger coalitions and the reason they do this is because strategic interests particularly in relation with the US and foreign policy dominate so far in their, at the top level over the economic interests um. So I might uh, now conclude that in question, if you're interested, I can tell you roughly the battles that took place in Seoul um, or in Paris, uh, just the last G20 uh, finance minister meeting, uh, or in Nanjing, there was a big conference uh, where the French asked the Chinese to actually organize for them a conference on the monetary system. So I can leave that for question if you're interested about events. on the leader of the IMF again, is no coordination. Whereas uh, Tokyo waiting so far, not taking position. China playing the BRICS card, while informally still supporting Lagarde. Korea wanted a Korean, a great guy actually, uh, Sakonil, but eventually moved uh, behind Lagarde. They have also not expressed a common voice. Um, the China game is to have someone placed as number two or three, and um, number three probably, uh, in order to grow uh, that person for the future. And he's a very competent person. Do you mean? Um,
3: number three in
1: the IMF. Right, so today, they tried to have him. They brought him last year, and they tried to have Jumin. He was hired in the IMF, right? They wanted him number three. The number two position is always US. Uh, and the number three, two other vice um, MD, and they tried to have him at three or four. And this wasn't possible at the time. So they got him in as special advisor to strauss So a sort of new position. But now the Chinese game is to bandwagon probably behind Lagarde in exchange for a formalization of this position as either three or four Uh, in order to prepare for the next game and maybe uh, breeding him as someone who could be the next head of IMF. So that's roughly the... I I could give you more details on I've been sort of told what they're doing and thinking. Conclusion, the world is in the midst of uh, an attempt to rebuild the global regulatory infrastructure uh, that is necessary for global markets to function. Also, in an attempt, you know, we, it's a moment where we are striving as humanity to build new governance at the global level that can solve global problems like climate change. Uh, it's difficult, it's not functioning that well, but the stakes are very, very high. It's a game of extreme importance that in a way it should be watched by citizens. Um, at the core of the G20, what's driving it today is the triangle between US, China, and Europe. Uh, China is probably the pivotal player because it's the only one that can bring the US in, uh, also uh, because it's in the middle of the spectrum, in terms of policy spectrum. But China's positions remain today fluid and divided. Uh, they's, they're going through a big learning curve, and they're also going through a transition of leadership but where China ends up after 2013, under the new leadership, will be critical for that game of global governance and G20. Uh, fundamentally, by the way, everyone in China supports the G20. There is actually a very strong and enthusiastic support for the project and the idea of G20 in China. Stronger than in Japan or US, right? This is something. Uh, and they believe in this big picture of, of public good and, and, uh, and the need for that coordination. Um, and then also we can note that the Northeast Asian sphere is not functioning in terms of coordination, uh, strategic coordination around the needs of the G20. Um, and actually, I could argue further and say that there is a gap between the underlying preferences and fundamental interests of, particularly Japan and Korea, and the position they officially take in the G20 on a range of issues, uh, which, you know, if you're a financial analyst, you can call this an arbitrage opportunity. But probably over time, uh, there will be a shift, because they are sort of away from the underlying preferences. Uh, So I'll I'll, uh, leave that for questions and answers. Okay. Eve, thank
0: you (laughs) very much indeed. Okay. um, Mm. It it pains me to cut you short, but I had to uh, draw uh, the talk to a conclusion, because I'm sure you could have talked for another hour. But the audience will want to come in, and I'm sure we can come back Mm. to many of the points Mm. that you've raised. Because uh, we have just under half an hour, I suggest we take two or three questions at a time, depending on how many there are, and then we'll ask Eve to respond to those. Do you want to stay over there? Do you want I'll to sit take, there? A, take a seat. Well. Uh, here's another a, a cup and have a glass of water. So, uh, could I invite you to show me your uh, interest in asking questions? Could I have a show of hands and then I'll go through the uh, the rows? Slowly? Okay, I'll start at the front.
3: Robert, you want to kick off and then I'll slowly work my way through the... Uh, Yes, I I found that a really fascinating talk and um, although I had been writing about the G20 myself I I learnt uh, a lot from what you said Um, but um, there was a kind of a tension running through uh, your argument. Um, On the one hand you uh, made great emphasis on what you called a rebalancing of power. And you used phrases like, uh, when economics turns into power, and your primary um, data had to do with shifts in the share of global GDP um, accruing to China and the others. But you seem to take it as sort of largely automatic that this change in weights, economic weights, would be translated, or is being, has been translated into power, into influence, and so this this is the other leg of the tension. You gave a lot of evidence that this is not actually happening, at least not very much. Um, I mean, you made it very clear that Japan, which is after all still the second or maybe third biggest economy, it's the heaviest weighted economy second or third heaviest weight of economy, actually has very little influence. Um, so there's obviously no automatic translation of economic weight into political power, as you tended to imply. But secondly, you gave a lot of evidence about China, that in many ways China has been concerned primarily to, to sit at the table to get more votes but not actually to take um, anything like leadership positions, rather to use its presence to block efforts by um, others. So uh, how do you uh, respond to this point that there is really an inconsistency in your own argument? Okay, think about that. Mm
0: -hmm. I'll take one more and then um, Mm -hmm. we'll give you a chance. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Uh, considering recent
2: economic models showing that uh, by twenty thirty Japan's share in global GDP will have dropped three percent and China's wealth will have increased, why does Japan not feel the same economic vulnerability that uh, China does? Okay.
0: Do you all hear the questions? Should I repeat them? Repeat Okay. Just the first question was essentially about whether the, the shift in economic wealth has translated in an equal shift in political power whether we should therefore assume that China will play uh, a global political role uh, just because it is economically powerful. And the second question sorry I, while I was talking I, I forgot about the second question. Why, why is more vulnerable. Yes, yes. And why would China be more vulnerable than Japan given that they are themselves oh, in a civil no, position? No, no,
1: that, that wasn't the question. The, okay. Why does the Japan not feel as economically vulnerable as China? Okay, alright. Good. Eve,
0: could you handle those very quickly, and then we'll yeah. move on. There are lots of people who want to come in,
1: right? And so th- this is great. Great question, and thank you very much for the both of you. Um, you know, the, for for Robert, the point, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's uh, <coughs> it's a story of um, underlying power and potential, and then the effectual the actual use of it, which depends, of course, on politics and. Uh, you know it's like there's a gross curve and then there's the the actual and then there's a a gap between the output gap so here there's a political gap (laughs) between what uh, the power can be and what it it is actually used to Um, most visible is for Japan right? Japan has power but it's not using it Um, and and it's purely a story of domestic politics afterwards so in a sense but it's correct that the the tension in the story is that I show a long-term story which is a potential curve of power and what it can be, and then so far a focus on short-term outcomes where that power is not yet translated into influence. Uh, but um, you know, if we look, so there's a time gap, of time inconsistency, and there's obviously time lags in those things. Uh, but over time, uh, economic power is transformed into, political, into international power. Um, in, in, you know, the, but there can be long inconsistencies And Japan has had the longest, has rarely used actually its weight uh, in international arenas. And that's essentially an institutional feature. Now it's most dramatic because we have political paralysis, so there's nobody there to use the power. Um, But you know, often institutionally the you know, the international focus of the Prime Minister or or the key agencies has not been very strong. So they they have So it's actually interesting, where there is the potential de facto power looked by, outsiders see it, but then a country can have its own psychological biases or internal domestic political biases, which makes it underplay or overplay. There's one country that's the reverse is Korea, where Korea last year overplayed, you know, played more than its weight uh, because it had a, a presidency very well organized and a leadership that put a lot of energy into the G20. So they ended up being overactive and, and playing over their weight. Um, the two things, obviously in, in, a, in a published work, the two things have to be separated, but you know, it's, it's like in economics, the, the actual, uh, you know, the actual day, day-to-day economic results and then the, the potential. Um, for China, you know, the interesting thing is, yes, China is gaining that absolute power. Everyone sees it. Everyone expects China to have it. Uh, and but the people, I mean, the, the story for China is simpler than for Japan. Simply, the, the leadership is not ready for you know. There is a lack of uh, of knowledge about international finance, international economics. They feel it's still ill at ease. They feel they don't have that you know that they feel that the G7 countries have been doing this for 30 years, and they're brand new in the room. Uh, so they're uncomfortable. They're not sure. They fear unintended consequences. So they're very worried about pushing something without fully understanding the consequences. Uh, so, but, but that's not going to be l- lasting for <coughs> right? long. This is this transition period. You find uh, just one notch below, you find below the surface in China an explosion of discussion, think tanks forming, uh, a lot of you know, workshops appearing, and you start to have people at the track two level taking stronger and stronger positions. But the the top leadership is not yet confident to grab those and express them at the top leadership in an international summit. But this is a story of two, three years. It's going to come up more and more. Uh, And it may not be as disruptive uh, as we assume. That is, on many issues, uh, on systemic risk of finance, they're totally on the side of what a lot of economists have said or, or a lot of Europeans have said. Uh, in terms of you know, the need for things like home tax, the need for capital controls, etc. Uh, so the, the outcome, the other issues, were well, the monitoring and indicators, they have been playing at time and blocking. Uh, but in Paris in February, they ac- actually accepted the indicators. Uh, this was a major moment where what they refused in Seoul, they accepted in Paris, 2011. Uh, and, but the, the inside story was it was very hard, it was like pulling teeth because the top leadership was very fearful that this would be used against them. Uh, and the, the, global, the top leadership in China is very, very uh, upset about this term global imbalances because you know the global financial crisis has two big models. One model is it was a failure of financial regulation in the U.S. and at a global level. The Chinese believe that and <laughs> the economists believe that. The other model is one that says well it's about global imbalances, Say so much uh, money, dollars accumulating and flowing to the U.S. markets, that the U.S. markets have to do crazy stuff, right? They have to innovate. All oh, this money is, is flowing in in, in such a bonnet way that any, you know, it's no regulation can prevent, uh, uh, you know, this systemic risk. And, but the Chinese leadership is very furious that you know the story about global imbalances is used as a way to diffuse attention from the financial regulations. Uh, so anyway, all this is happening behind the scenes but this in the end you're going to have a much bigger Chinese voice and they will stop playing the game and it's a training process um, Okay, the second question, why Japan doesn't feel vo- as vulnerable, that's actually interesting because, um, because actually their economy is not globally vulnerable in the same way as the Chinese one uh, Because China is still in a transition moment and they know that, uh, you know, right now they're in a vulnerable situation in the sense that they're imbalanced, right? Too much of the economy relies on exports uh, and a lot, you know, a lot of it exposed to the US. Uh, They know, you know, going up the ladder, they're gonna have to open up their capital account gradually, partially. They're gonna have to, uh, you know, when they get more sophisticated, uh, more complex as an economy, they cannot just have the simple capital controls and simple control of banks, they're gonna have to move in a, in a you know in, in a in a ladder. And that process is very fearful. All other countries have, have, have failed in doing this, and usually I've hit major prices. Uh, and they feel that this process is heavily controlled by the G7 countries that have more knowledge. Uh, so even though in terms of size, yeah, they are more they, they're getting bigger, the transition, they're still in that transition moment where they feel vulnerable in the process. With the Japanese. I have I've done all this, but they have failed several times. But at least they're a bit more comfortable with the system. Uh, and yes, they're flat, but they're not seeking uh, to change anything in the world system. Uh, so, in a way, they're more stable, more mature, and in essence, they're more, less uh, vulnerable. But also on a curve where Japan will have less and less weight in, in global affairs if they don't, <laughs> if they don't change the, the direction of the curve.
2: Good.
0: Let's take another round of questions. Yes, please.
2: I have a question on IMF succession. Yeah. I'm interested in the Third World Solidarity and one thing that disappointed me is that nobody's really gotten behind Mexico's Agustin Carstens. Although Mexico is not technically a developing country anymore since it's now a member of the OECD, as in the G77 kick out those who joined the rich country clubs. I think that Carstens would have represented a good candidate because he did uh, recently, still is doing a reasonably good job as the Mexican central banker. The Mexican economy's micro-economic statistics is very good. And he was also formerly the IMF number two. What are the reasons other than China and this horse trading that you described being a reason for there being so little backing for him? I think that the uh, developing countries are weak in these multilateral institutions is that they fail to back candidate from their own and try to get together in the way that the uh, rich countries have behind the card for example. Okay, good. And then right at the back please. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I uh-huh.
4: have Page of the US, U.S. dollar hegemony and in have uh, created a current international currency and that was kind of quite unusual uh, because usually no Chinese leader, is, especially Joshua Trump was not supposed to be a leader. She, he, sorry, he is only a technocrat. So he had this kind of, uh, he raised his voice. Uh, um, so what do you think of this specific case? Do you think it's exceptional or do you think it's a test? over whether China can effectively raise issue in
1: the in international arena and what was the lesson learned from this test? Thank you. Thank you. You this. Yeah, so that's a very fun question. Uh, the IMF succession, um, th- this is indeed a very interesting story. Uh, cor- the issue of Corstens is that he is not, he's seen by some in the emerging markets, uh, you know, he's a Chicago uh, PhD, so he's seen as an extreme neoliberal in some ways. Uh, so not uh, just as a, you know, as a third world candidate. He's not, uh, so he's not someone who has built, he has built much more connection with the US than with China, India, et cetera. He's not one who personally has big networks in China. He's not well known in China or in, in India. He's only starting you know, now to go around, et cetera. Uh, but the bigger story is more that the BRICS, even though they came up, what was historical is the, fri- the BRICS countries uh, you know, five of them. Uh, they came up with a statement, which was very un- un- exceptional and historic, uh, in which they said, "We need to change the way it's done. We need someone who is not just competent, but also politically capable of continuing reforms in the IMF." So that part represented the agreement among the five big emerging powers. Uh, but beyond that, the inside story is they were not ready. You know, it comes a little too. It comes a little too early. All this has lag. That is. There's always a lag between this power that you start to see and actually the coordination among them the political either you, know, you have to build all this this work together to be able to express a common interest and they have not reached that level uh, they were not they caught fat-footed they were not ready to come up behind a person but Karsten personally is not necessarily uh, deeply trusted uh, you know by the other by the briCS countries um, and you know, and, and Mexico is always seen as as close to the U.S. in NAFTA as you know. And, but this talk, actually, this talk among some of the BRICS to bring Mexico into the BRICS, to expand BRICS to even include Turkey and Mexico. Uh, but some countries, like India, are blocking it. They feel that uh, Mexico be too close will provoke the wrath of the U.S. Or Mexico be a, a Trojan horse for the U.S. inside the BRICS. There's all kinds of interesting things going on here. Uh, but so it, the fact that he's a robust candidate, though, is uh, setting, uh, you know, a precedent for next time. And basically, it's a marker that next time will not be easy, <laughs> and that the European summit probably will not get their way as easily. Uh, also, the weight will have changed. Now we're still on the relatively old weight, uh, you know, voting uh, weights. And next time around, the voting weight reform of the Seoul summit will be ex- will be in place. If
2: China gets the most weights, then the IMF will have to move to China according to articles of Agreement.
1: Well, but China, you know, in the next will be 5-something percent. It's not, it's not yet, you know. U.S. is at 17%. I mean, but, correct, in 2025, t- most likely China will have an equal economy to the U.S. And by then, yeah, the question will, it will be interesting. <laughs> um, the China-Japan relationship, um, that's interesting. There is there's several things going on at the same time, you know, so especially looking at... If you look at it from China... Uh, China now considers Japan as a regional player, not a global player. So in any case, their their big big partner is the US because they see Japan as a much smaller player. Uh, But from a Japanese perspective, this is correct that there is a mixture of of, uh, integration and, and competition and fear. But one trend that's absolutely fascinating and it's relatively quiet is that Japan is gradually being integrated into the Chinese <laughs> economy. Uh, you know, if I say it bluntly, uh, in, again, the last decade is critical. In 2000, uh, 30% of Japanese exports were going to the U.S., 10% to China. In 2010, we have rich equality. In fact, China has passed the U.S. 20% to 22% now to, in 2010 to China and 18% to U.S. In 2020, we'll be roughly at 30-10, but the other way, so the Chinese, the Japanese economy is gradually being more and more integrated into the Chinese economy. And China, Japan has no future in growing without hooking to the Chinese mainframe, essentially. The same story is happening to Korea and to Taiwan, by the way. So there's a lot of stories you know, in Taiwan, et cetera. But, uh, so within that context, uh, Japan, yes, has political competition with China. And it has some worries, strategic worries about China. At the same time, it's getting more and more economically dependent on China. Uh, so that we are this critical moment where they are really going to build that relationship. There is effort to integrate. You know, they just decided to have a permanent secretariat for the Japan-Korea-China triangle. Uh, again, the f- coming factors are critical. If it, if they manage to move toward more integration and institutionalization, or if the tensions sort of dominate, uh, it's it's hanging in the balance right now. Um, on Zhou Chen, this is a, yeah, this is a great story. Um, we know, this is a bit of a fluke, actually, yes. This is the only moment like this. Uh, the idea about the SDR, you know, and the Zhou I Xiaoqian mean, uh, speech had general worries about financial volatility and about the monetary system. And what he said there looks very much what, you know, what Bob Brown said, what uh, France and Germany said, or Toyo Bioten in Japan. But the second part was about the SDR, which was unusual, was unexpected. This was a sort of uh, a trial balloon. It was actually written by Liu uh, Yongding and also Pan uh, Li from uh, uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University. Uh, and they sort of come up with this idea. No one was sure, right? There was discussion about it. Are you sure this makes sense? And in fact, we're not sure about the consequence. But uh, eventually, Joe Chachin picked that up and probably, and people disagree on how much uh, rubber stamp he had, approval he had from State Council but some assume he must have had tacit agreement by the state council. Others say, well, maybe we're not sure. But it was essentially a bluffing effort to tell the US, hold on, you know, we're gonna start speaking uh, and we cannot, you cannot always take us for granted to buy this infinite debt. Uh, and this is, you know, it's, it's, and it had this big impact. But in practice, China actually is very uncertain about the SDR. They don't want right now the, you know, the Rayman b to be in the SDR because uh, there will be too many conditions that are too intrusive, in particularly on the capital flow side and capital account side. And so it, it was, it's part of the game uh, and I think they got some effect but we haven't seen it reproduce. but I think you're going to see more and more some ideas, proposals and, uh, and China is interested in a larger dialogue with a lot of countries and, and they may come up with joint proposals in the future. Uh, it's an iterative, iterative process, it's actually interesting. Good if
0: we can squeeze in one more round are there any other questions? Okay, anybody? Well, the lady over there.
4: Paul Martin set this up that you tried to, but it's been very, very disappointing with the effects he you know, particularly on the environment of the tube it's absolutely pathetic. You mentioned that it may well fizzle out. I mean, what are the projections for the next one in London? It doesn't really look good, does it?
1: In
3: right? Can- uh, Sorry, in count. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other questions? Well, uh, yes. I, okay. Do you think yes. that in uh, Do you think that in ten years, no, let's say fifteen years, the G20 will still be in existence in anything like its present form, given that it permanently excludes 173 members of the United Nations? Okay. Did you want to come in briefly? Very good. Yes, please. Um, I'm saying, considering uh, the, uh,
1: the Spanish multinational crisis, do you think that we'll be we seeing Spain having a larger bearing on the G20 to encourage a positive response to its economy, or will it be having a smaller bearing on the G20? It's a slightly unrelated question. So Spain, you, you're worried about Spain, not Greece and Portugal? Oh, this. no, no, Spain has a much larger company. Oh, okay. <laughs> But if Spain goes to Greek, well, they may not <laughs> qualify for membership. <laughs> okay. Well, they're not OK, <laughs> so this is great. Uh, of course, the future is hard to say. Um, it's correct that this year is a bad year for the G20 because all the leaders are lame ducks, <laughs> <laughs> nearly every leader. So every leader has election next year, including China. Right, The leadership is changing. Uh, and so, you know, and, and critically, uh, the U.S. leadership, you know, is in a pre-election mode. Uh, and so it's very, very hard. Technically, it's a very, very bad year to try to have any deal among leaders. Um, so in the short term, the key of what can can reach is some more minor level agreements. People expect there might be, um, you know, an, an agreement on capital controls. The conditions in a way the legitimization at the top of capital controls but under very strict conditions still will be a, a major step forward there might be something on the mon- uh, monitoring of commodity prices you know we say commodities have been very volatile well we know now that you know there's been this article in foreign policy that is partly due to innovation in finance you know an index by Goldman Sachs that can only go one way only increase that has increased an immense flow of money into buying commodities as as a tool of investment rather than people would need that. So the prices have gone beyond the the fundamentals. So there there might be something there too. There will be a few of those agreements which still mean something even though they're not solving the global problems. uh, But they represent institutional progress. Uh, It's more around 2013 that we may have a window for bigger things Um, after all the elections have taken place. That's the reality in the short run. Will it a out? Well, you know, there are many countries who are very enthusiastic about it, and not include China, uh, but also India, you know, many Europeans. Uh, so the least enthusiastic are U.S., Japan, and Canada. <laughs> uh, the Canadian today on the current leadership, right? Uh, not before, right? uh um, U.S., Canada, and? Japan. Japan. Uh, so Japan until now I mean were taking out of, uh Canada and uh, Japan say exactly similar things. They say, well the G7 was a great for us on G, right? there's that sort of nostalgia, but all other countries are rather you know very enthusiastic because they rec- they recognize the absolute need of something like this and um, and the immense functional needs for global governance and the lack of alternatives. So um, I, and there's a bit of energy, you know, some build-up, uh you know, some momentum and institutional past dependence in the process. So passing, you know, by, bearing uh, you know, an extreme Republican elected <laughs> in the U.S., uh, you know, kind of that, that's always possible. Where right? we essentially said, well, the U.S. is not interested, sorry, and pulls out. Bearing something like this, the G20 will continue mildly first, and then eventually we'll have probably uh, another uh, potential in 2013 or so uh, for Robert's question, you know, I'm less worried about the re- legitimacy and representation than uh, the ability of the big countries to make deals, uh, because that, you know, you need both, yes. You, for any progress in, in, uh, in having some kind of coordination and solving systemic risk, even climate change later. Uh, climate change is a good example. When you have the UNFCC framework, it's not going anywhere, because you have too many countries in the room, including less significant ones, uh, and uh, smaller countries essentially pull the older shots and the big countries are unwilling to make any promises in that context uh, For climate change, if you take uh, you know, 12 countries, well if you count the EU one you have already 80% of emissions so if you could have a deal among the 12 big ones you could actually solve climate change um, but the key, and, and, and we know very well, climate change cannot move forward without the US and China together they 41% of emissions uh, So. I am more worried, realistically speaking, about the big countries not falling in zero-sum games and f- managing their great power. Um, and in a second step, then expanding legi- legitimacy and outreach. The second step on the outreach and legitimacy is easier. In fact, they have models, which is to probably elect. They can reach a the G20 and have five seats that are elected seats, represented groups, representing large groups. You know, like what you have on the IMF board of government. I mean, there is ways. Uh, oh, now there's another model Singapore has unified 20 countries that, uh, in Asia and others that are concerned by G20 and concerned about being elected uh, excluded and, and for, as recognition for that role, Singapore is I- invited at all the recent G20, will be invited by France again, as one of the five invitees, so there are ways to federate some of the absence and get them invited and expand, you know, having a few extra seats. that's easier to do than getting the US, China and Europe to agree anything uh, that, that's the tough one, uh, particularly US and China, because they're so fearful of each other. Uh, many, many top leaders in Congress, etc., fear, you know, essentially they are saying, well, in the current game, China is winning more than us. They're free riding, uh, and they're going to replace us as top power in 2025. Why do we have to play this game, right? Can't we use anything to stop it? Uh, this always, that's the hegemonic game, right? Where the, the top leader is not very happy about being replaced. And then China, is very fearful of this. So that dominates everything. You know, even things like Toby tax, you talk, they all say, great, 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 but the U.S. will be mad, we can't afford it. Uh, and so that game dominates everything today. Uh, and so the, essentially the G20 is a large game to manage this U.S.-China game. Uh, and having lots of mediators and lots of <laughs> midwives. Uh, and if we can handle this first and then expand the legitimacy, uh, we'll get going somewhere. But going straight to 195 countries doesn't work in terms of getting the US and China to get anywhere. Um, uh, on Spain, well, yes, the, I mean, Spain is, I mean, more broadly, you know, Greece, Greece Portugal, etc. It's a very, very serious crisis. Uh, it's, you know, even Greece is very serious today because there's no good solution for it. Greece cannot afford the, the, debt, uh, the debt burden in half. So we know that this, the writing is on the wall. They're going to have to default or restructure their debt,? right? And the, the Europeans don't, don't accept it because their banks will lose money in the France. Uh And so that's Greece, and then Spain is the same even bigger. So primarily, it's the eurozone problem. The euro may not survive, or they're going to have to move very f- um, to integrate much more the governance of the euro. But some critical decisions will have to happen. That's primarily this. The G20 side of it is minor, but uh, there's one concern that's coming out of China and everywhere. They're concerned that the IMF is giving lots of money to those European countries. Money that's not partly Chinese money. Uh, while there is a more has concern that is the, uh, the head of IMF is European. So they, you start hearing that voice that uh, the money is used for those cushy Europeans who don't care, who are sort of wanting to protect their advantages that poor countries don't even have. And we're using full country money to do this. You have that concerns coming out. Uh, and so, you know, if the IMF tries to have a huge bailout, they might be opposition by the Greek countries uh, for Spain, right? Uh, but primarily, it's the Eurozone problem, and the Eurozone is on the brink. There's no the question. Yeah. Well, on that rather
0: pessimistic note, <laughs> I think I'll call this to an end. Will you please join me in thanking you for a stimulus?